With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. One of the words that's become utterly void of meaning in the last few years, because of its overuse and just misuse, is the word privilege. White privilege, male privilege, able-bodied privilege, gender privilege, heterosexual privilege, even hot privilege. In these contexts, privilege is a stain, a kind of original sin meant to guilt the offending party into repenting for it at every twist and turn in their life. Surely you've heard the phrase, check your privilege. It became a common refrain of the past two decades. What all of this has done is to confuse and undermine the idea of real privilege, real advantage that some situations produce over others, which of course really exist in this country. And that is what today's conversation is all about. Because the ultimate privilege in America is not being born white or straight or male. The ultimate privilege, as my guest today argues, is being born into a household with two parents. And she has the data to prove it. University of Maryland economist Melissa Carney argues in her new book, The Two-Parent Privilege, how Americans stopped getting married and started falling behind, that declining marriage rates in America are driving many of the country's biggest economic problems today, that the steep decline in marriage is widening the economic gap in opportunities and outcomes, rendering already vulnerable populations even more vulnerable. What's particularly interesting about this story is that while the share of children living with unmarried parents has increased at staggering rates over the past 50 years, divorce rates have actually dropped. In other words, the rise in children living with unmarried parents isn't because their parents are splitting up. It's because their parents aren't getting married in the first place. This is completely unprecedented in America. Here's just one of many shocking statistics in her book. In the 1950s, less than 5% of babies in this country were born out of wedlock. Today, nearly half of all babies in America are born to unmarried mothers. But perhaps most surprising and worrisome about all of this, and Melissa shows this in her book, is how this trend is clearly divided along lines of class— Because college-educated parents are still, by and large, raising their kids in two-parent households and getting married. But parents without college degrees are not. Now, here's the thing. Many of the arguments that Carney makes in her book, I find, and I think you will find, to be extremely commonsensical. As a new mother myself, one who was recently up all night for multiple nights in a row with a vomiting baby in my arms, the idea that two parents are better than one is so evident and so obvious it's almost laughable. Why do we need to even point it out in the first place? And yet Melissa's book has received a lot of criticism, including from those in our culture who don't dare make judgments on issues of home and family life, perhaps because that's long been considered to be the domain of social conservatives. But as celebrated economist and our friend Tyler Cowen said of Melissa's book, 
this could be the most important economics and policy book of the year. Yes, it's remarkable that such a book is so needed, but it is. What I want to point out about this conversation with Melissa is that the word privilege, at least as Melissa uses it, is not a dirty word. It is not a judgment that some people are intrinsically better or worse than others. It's not a word meant to guilt or shame a group of people. Quite the opposite. It's an aspirational word. It's meant to inspire policies, programs, changes in our social norms and choices we make to even the playing field so that we can do better for all of our children so that every child in America has the best possible chance for flourishing. Because that, as Melissa will argue, is what every child in this country deserves. We'll be right back with Melissa Carney. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Melissa Carney, welcome to Honestly. Thank you so much for having me, Barry. Really happy to have you here. So a few years ago, you were at a conference on economic inequality in America, and everyone there was talking about gaps in pay between workers without college degrees, about tech, about the decline of unions, about the rise of CEO pay, all the things that by now all of us who follow this topic are used to reading about. But you describe raising your hand in the middle of this conference and asking what seems to me to be a very simple and commonsensical question. How should we think about the role of marriage, family, and home environment in all of this? And what you describe is that everyone in the room kind of went quiet and people started shifting in their seats. And as you relay in your new book, later that night, a fellow economist approached you a little bit defensively and grilled you about why marriage should even be a factor to consider in a conversation about economic inequality. If kids are being taken care of, he asked, what does it matter if parents are married? And you said at that moment that you knew you had hit on something important. What had you hit on? I think that whole episode for me just made it very, very clear that this is a topic of tremendous importance, the topic being marriage and family structure and kids' home environment. It's tremendously important to the conversation around economic opportunities, inequality, social mobility, and it's not something that gets the attention it deserves in public. It made me realize, gosh, I this is something that we need to figure out how to talk about 
what to do about it. And we're never really going to have an honest, productive conversation about class gaps and kids' opportunities and economic outcomes if we don't address this topic, the topic of how kids are being raised and what's happened to family structure in the U.S., head on. So let's back up a little bit and talk about what's actually happened to marriage and family in America over the past few decades. So over the past 40 years, there has been a dramatic decline in the share of children living with married parents. In the 1950s, less than 5% of babies in America were born out of wedlock. Today, and I think this is still shocking every time I read it, even though I've read it many times, half of all babies in this country are born to unmarried mothers. So I'd like to understand sort of in a big picture way how we got from there to here. Why are Americans not getting married anymore? And why are half of babies in this country born to moms who aren't? Okay, let's start by unpacking it really from the perspective of kids, because that's the perspective I take on on all of this. If we just look at what's happened to the share of kids living in married parent homes over the past 40 years, that share has fallen from 77% in 1980 to 63% now. Okay, so just more than 60% of kids live in married parent homes. This matters in terms of the share of kids living in two-parent homes. So it's a misconception that some have to think, oh, well, now, you know, people are just becoming less wed to the institution of marriage, but they're cohabiting, et cetera. That's not the case. Essentially, 30% of kids in the U.S. live outside a two-parent home. Wow. About 21% of kids live with a mother who has neither a married spouse or a partner, an unmarried partner, in the home with her. Four and a half percent of kids live with an unpartnered dad. Another four and a half percent of kids don't live with any parent. Only 8% of kids live with at least one biological parent and their partner, who may or may not be the child's second biological parent. And so the reason why this decline in marriage ultimately matters is because in the U.S., the decline in marriage has meant that more kids than in any other country in the world are now living with just one parent. Okay, so how did we get there? Well, you already hinted at the real cause here, which is the increase in the share of kids being born to unmarried mothers. And so the story of kids living outside a two-parent home is really about an increasing share being born to parents who were never married. It's not about an increase in divorce. Divorce in the U.S. is down from the mid-'80s, in part because many fewer people, including those who have a child together, are getting married in the first place. Now, a small majority of those unpartnered mothers I referred to have never been married. And again, I know we're going to talk later about why this all matters, but just think about what this means, because a, a kid whose parents were married and divorced— For some of that child's childhood, they had two parents in the home. They're much more likely to be receiving child support and engagement with the father. Kids whose parents were never married are much less likely to be receiving any support or have any meaningful engagement with the second parent. Okay, so all of this really is very descriptively important to how we got here. The other really important thing to realize is that this decline in marriage among parents, this rise in the share of kids living with just one parent, this rise in non-marital childbearing, this has happened predominantly outside the college-educated class. And that's why this topic is so instrumental to conversations and concerns about inequality and threats to social mobility, because kids who are born 
to moms with a four-year college degree, the most economically successful women in our society, they are still primarily being raised in married parent homes in pretty much the same numbers or shares as they were 40 years ago. It's really among more economically vulnerable parents that there's been this rise in kids living outside of a two-parent or married parent setting. Well, this is exactly where I wanted to go. So let's talk a little bit about that shocking fact. Marriage is almost like a luxury good. Yeah. It's like something reserved for people that are college-educated and wealthy. As you just said, college-educated adults these days in this country are much more likely than non-college-educated adults to get married and to raise kids in two-parent homes. But this wasn't always the case. From the 1960s through the 1990s, women with college degrees were actually less likely to be married than women without college degrees. So what happened in those intervening decades, and how did this trend get reversed? So here's the story that I read from the data and evidence and mounds of studies related to this overall topic. So in the 60s and 70s, there was a social cultural revolution in the U.S., changing expectations about marriage, a greater acceptance of having a child outside of a marriage, changing expectations about gender norms. And what did we see? We see decreases in marriage essentially across the education distribution in roughly equal proportion. What do I mean? I mean, whether you had a college degree or a high school degree or less than a college degree, those adults were less likely to get married by the end of that period. And then going into the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, marriage rates among college-educated adults essentially stabilized. But outside of that group, among U.S. adults with lower levels of education— the share of them getting married continued a straight line down. It just continued mm. plummeting. I think economics is a big part of the story here. So college-educated adults did really well all through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. They did really well. They continued to see increases in their earnings, and they continued to marry each other in high rates. Outside the college-educated class— Men in particular saw their employment rates decline, their earnings decline. We saw a loss in a number of jobs that in previous generations provided family-sustaining, well-paying jobs for men without college degrees. Manufacturing jobs, industrial production jobs, those jobs were eliminated. You know, there was downward earnings pressure. And we saw a corresponding decrease in marriage among affected adults in affected communities such that economists have drawn a causal connection here, showing that in places where outside economic forces led to a reduction in these jobs, manufacturing jobs, industrial jobs, we saw a reduction in the employment and earnings of non-college-educated men and a subsequent corresponding decrease in marriage and an increase in the share of kids living in single-mother homes. So there's really this causal arrow here. So, Melissa, let's do a scenario. You know, I'm from Pittsburgh, used to be a manufacturing town. Steel was our big industry. The same, let's say, non-college-educated steel worker yeah. who in, you know, the mid-50s, let's say, would have been married, two-car garage, two kids, that's his life. All of a sudden, that job 
through many, many factors that we don't have time to get into here. That job goes to China. There's no more steel in Pittsburgh. And what happens to that guy circa the 2000s? Same profile. Yeah, he might drop out of the workforce entirely. He might go on disability insurance early. He might, depending on underlying conditions, might even go on supplemental security income, in which case, you know, he's less likely to be an attractive marriage partner or a reliable financial provider for a family. He might have gotten pushed instead into a lower paying occupation, say building services, food services, something that just doesn't pay as well as one of those unionized jobs in a steel producing factory would have in generations before. The very unromantic view of marriage that economists take when we write down our models of marriage and then test them in the data is something like this. You're a woman. You're deciding, do I want to marry this guy? Well, his employment is unstable. He sort of brings some other challenges to the relationship. I can make more than he can. I'm not going to bother. I think I'm going to do this by myself and maybe keep an eye out and maybe a better match will come along. It could also be the man himself saying, you know what, my employment situation is not great. Sometimes I can't really afford a place. I live with my parents. I'm not sure I want to commit to being the breadwinner for a family or get married. And so that's the sort of unromantic model that strips out, you know, love and compatibility, but just looks at the economic incentives to marry or not. And it turns out they're pretty predictive. So when I think about declining marriage rates, there's sort of a right-wing caricature of why it's happened and a left-wing caricature of why it's happened. The right-wing one would go something like this. All of those things that the bra-burning feminists of the 60s and 70s convinced the culture were good, the pill, no-fault divorce, the sexual revolution, they rot the current situation that we're in, which is bad for everybody. And the left-wing caricature would go something like this. All of those things that the neoliberals tried to sell you on that they said were good, NAFTA, globalization, outsourcing, manufacturing, and things like that, they're to blame. They're to blame for the material decline and the reason that people aren't getting married. Both true, neither true. Which one more true? I think there's some truth to both. I... um very earnestly and optimistically in the book, tried not to label different arguments as more or less consistent with one ideology or another, because really none of this should be ideological. (laughs) But there's a lot of evidence in favor of both. So let's just start with the social and cultural move away from marriage. There's actually a very famous paper in economics. And in fact, Janet Yellen is one of the co-authors of this paper. And it talks about, again, in the very non-romantic language of economists, the introduction of the pill and the legalization of abortion in the 70s and how that sort of changed the bargaining power between men and women. If a woman found herself pregnant after contraception became readily available and abortion was readily available, it changes the bargaining power such that basically the institution of shotgun marriage went away, okay? Mm-hmm. So so there's no more shotgun marriage. Again, for better or worse, right? But just as a matter of fact, people are much less likely to feel like they have to get married now for a variety of reasons, even if they have a child together. But it's also true that marriage is an economic contract at a very deep level. And marriage has always, in some sense, been about two people combining their efforts to contribute to home production and when there's children, the raising of children. And if the economic situation of one of those partners 
And in a model with traditional gender norms, in particular the dad or the man is undermined, then the economic appeal or stability of that institution or contract is eroded. And so things like a loss of jobs through more aggressive trade, through the adoption of industrial robots, all these things that we might say increase the pie for everybody had really bad economic distributional consequences. And a whole bunch of people were hurt by them. You know, as a policy matter, I would say we didn't do enough to compensate those people who were negatively impacted by those economic trends. And what I'm showing in part in the book is that has all had really large consequences for men in America without a college degree and ultimately the institution of marriage and beyond that, family life and kids. And so there's some of both here. And in fact, what does this all mean? Where do we have to go? We're going to need to address both the economics and frankly, and you know, in my view, which is probably the most controversial view in the in the book, the social conventions that we have around raising kids and marriage and the desirability of that or the you know, the liberalization of those social conventions. I think there's a lot of evidence that both matter. I want to get into policies in just a minute. Let's stay for a second though on just diagnosing the scope of the change that we are living through maybe without noticing it. Here was something from your book that really shocked me, which is that despite birth rates falling over the last decade, the share of births to unmarried women has more than doubled since 1980. It's just like a staggering statistic. Explain to me why, despite the fact that overall birth rates are falling, that the share of births, again, to repeat it, to unmarried women has doubled over the past four decades. Why? This is so important and, again, addresses another sort of misconception that some people have, which is like, oh, you know, births to teenagers are out of control, et cetera. Teen births in the U.S. are down over 70% from the mid-'90s. That has been a stunning decrease and I would say, uh, you know, is good for society, right? Um, Teen births are tough on teen moms and their children. So huge reduction in teen births, large reduction in births among essentially all age groups under the age of 30. So those were the groups, you know, young women, teen moms in particular, moms with less than high school degree, their birth rates have fallen substantially. Those were the groups that tended to have elevated rates of single motherhood in previous decades. And so if we just were standing in the 90s and you told me births to all women under the age of 30 are going to fall, births to teenagers are going to plummet. What do you think is going to happen to the share of kids living in single-parent homes? Based on patterns in the data in the 90s, I would have predicted a large decrease in the share of kids born outside marriage being raised in single-parent homes. The doubling of the non-marital birth rate has essentially happened for all groups. So that's the really big change. So, you know, previously women with a high school degree, only a small share of their births were outside marriage. Now more than half are outside marriage. We've even seen a doubling in non-marital births among women with a four-year college degree, but that doubling brings us to 11%, right? So it's essentially doubled for all groups, which is why even though birth rates are down, especially among groups that used to have higher rates of single motherhood, the share of kids being born outside marriage, the share of kids growing up with only their moms has increased because for all groups, including those with a high school degree, 
especially among white moms who tended to have lower rates of single motherhood in the past, all of those rates have doubled. And so that's why now we have such a high share of kids being born to unmarried moms. Again, I can't emphasize enough how large and important to all of this the class gaps are. Because even when you come back to the feminist angle, you know, I'm getting pushback from feminists. Let's be clear, the 40-year-old woman with an MBA. Who's a single mom by choice. A is single not mom by choice, about. right? She finds herself 40 with lots of money, a great job, hasn't found the love of her life. She decides to do this on her own. That is not the story here, okay? That is the exception to the rule. It is primarily women without a college degree who generally partner with men without a college degree who are disproportionately likely to be finding themselves doing the hard job of raising a kid in a household by themselves. One element I think is increasingly urgent is the sort of decline of organized religion and faith Mm. and the role that that might play in the decline of marriage. In 2021, two years ago, for the first time in American history, House of Worship membership dropped below 50%, with just 47% of Americans saying that they belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. And for a little bit of context, that number in 1999 was 70%. What role do you think religion or the lack of religion, I guess, in contemporary America plays into this story for you? So this question keeps coming up since I've put out the book in September, and I I will give you my speculation, but I want to be clear. This is not something I talk about in the book, not just at length, but really not at all, because remember, I came to this topic and I wrote about this topic from the perspective of an economist. And so I'm very much coming at this from outside of these cultural conversations. The other reason I don't talk much about the role of religion is because I had a pretty high bar for what I would write in the book in terms of being able to cite very specific evidence on this. It's hard for me to find an estimate of the causal effect of a decline in religion as opposed to, you know, the decline in religious participation or participation in, in, you know, a house of worship, as you said. Ultimately, I do think it's not just an economic story that's driving the changing landscape of families. I do think economics sort of provided an initial impetus, but now we're really in a new social paradigm How much organized religion and involvement in an organized religious community reinforces these norms of marriage, being a reliable marriage partner, being a reliable contributor to the household that moves farther from my expertise, but it's hard for me to think that doesn't all matter. I think the theme, the word that keeps coming to mind as you're talking for me is deconstruction, the deconstruction of traditional religion, the deconstruction of a sense of duty or yes. like a role that we have to play. The, the, the word duty feels so crazy and radical to yes. say out loud right now and sort of like everything that flows from that. Yeah. Recently, somebody pushed back on me because, you know, one of my prescriptions is I think we need to reestablish a social convention or norm of two-parent households for kids. And the person pushed back on me and said, you know, norms restrict individual freedom. And I think that's exactly right. And that's the conversation we should be having. Yes, it restricts your freedom to decide you are committed to a a family, to a child you raised. And, you know, even if that's difficult, that's what you're going to do. 
Let me say, Barry, first, let me step back. There's nothing I am saying that should be misconstrued as saying anybody should stay in a violent or abusive relationship, okay? So let's just think that the marginal or incremental relationship now is not an abusive or harmful or violent relationship, but one in which, hey, we had a kid together. You know, you don't make me wildly happy. I think there might be a better guy. What is the obligation to the kid? I'm just telling you, with lots and lots of data, kids benefit from having two parents. And to the extent there is a duty to providing the most resource-rich home and stability that two parents can for their kid, that might conflict with individual freedom or liberties in any given week. Okay, well, that's a perfect segue to the thing that sort of put this book on my radar and has gotten you into a little bit of trouble, which is your judgment that all of these trends, and by all of these trends, I mean the decline in the two-parent household, the idea that a huge number of children in this country are born to a single mother, that it's not just, you know, spiritually bad, it's materially bad. In other words, you're writing about this as an economist and saying the economic consequences of this is one that we cannot ignore. Why is a two-parent household, from the perspective of an economist, not a social conservative, not a pastor, none of those things, just purely from an economic material perspective, why is it better to have two parents than one parent in the household? Yeah, here's where both the data and I would think common sense of anyone who's been raised as a kid or is raising kids is really just abundantly clear. My perspective on all of this is two parents combined have more resources than one. And so what do I mean when I say that? I mean income plus a whole bunch of other stuff. So let's just start with the income resources. Two parents in a home bring in the earnings or at least the earnings capacity of two parents. And so in a very, you know, straightforward way, we see that kids growing up in single mother homes are five times more likely to live in poverty than kids growing up in married <sighs> parent homes. Kids in single father homes are three times as likely to live in poverty. Some of that reflects the fact that people with lower levels of education or income are more likely to become single parents. But even if you compare across moms of the same education group or the same age, you see that kids who are growing up in a household with two parents, their household income is about twice as high because, you know, most couples at some point, two parents work, they are much more likely to graduate high school. They're twice as likely to graduate college. Income is an important mediator of that, but not all of it. So even if I compare households that, you know, the moms have the same education level, the same race, they live in the same state, there's married, you know, some of them married and some not, you know, even controlling for the same income, there's still a huge gap in the likelihood that kids go to college. Okay, so let's deconstruct that. What do parents do? Well, they do more than just pay for things. They're paying for things like a nicer, you know, house in a safe neighborhood with good school districts is a really big part of this, but they also spend time with their kids. And we see that kids who grow up with married parents have more parental time invested in them. All the things, right, that reading to your kid, talking to your kid, driving your kids to activities. If there are two parents in the household, there's just more time capacity. And let's be clear, none of this is to denigrate single moms or single dads. It's just a reflection of the reality. Two adults in the household have more combined time than one alone. Another set of resources that I think we have a lot of evidence on is 
there's more what I refer to as emotional bandwidth or less stress in households that have two parents as compared to one. Again, it's not hard to think through why that would be. If you were the only parent who's responsible for paying all the bills, cooking the meals, cleaning up the house, getting the kids where they need to go, there's likely to be a higher level of stress. And in you know nationally representative data sets that collect information about parenting, we see in the data that married parents are less likely to resort to spanking, harsher parenting. They're more likely to report having strong nurturing bonds with their kids. Hmm. Uh, you know, some people look at this and say, well, the kinds of parents who are single parents are always going to be less nurturing as parents. And so even if they were married, you know, their kids wouldn't benefit. I see no evidence for that. And I am much more inclined to think it's because doing this all by yourself is really freaking hard. <laughs> and so you're more likely to be stressed. You're less likely to be patient and nurturing. <laughs> I mean, that's why it's not just income, right? It's just having a second set of hands, a second person who could pick up some of the slack. But again, we see this all very clearly in the data. We see that kids from two-parent households are less likely to have behavioral issues. They're more likely to reach educational milestones. They're less likely to get in trouble with the law. All things that set them up to be in a better position to thrive in life. And then when you you know, sort of do our statistical games that we play as empirical researchers to try and control for things, we can see that if there's a non-resident dad, but they spend more time with the child, that shrinks some of the gaps. Obviously, income shrinks some of the gaps. So all of these things are the mechanisms through which a two-parent household delivers these benefits or privileges or advantages for kids. So then I think that, that raises the question of, well, it's certainly not the case that all of these single-parent households would be better off if the second parent were in the house. And we also have evidence that when the second parent might be a negative influence, that child is better off with just one parent. There's two recent studies in economics. One's in the country of Columbia, one's in Ohio. The child has a parent who's convicted of a crime. Mm-hmm. And through the randomness of who gets assigned to which judge, if that convicted person gets randomly assigned to a judge who has a higher likelihood of putting someone in prison with that criminal conviction, it turns out that looks beneficial for the kid. And I think this is really important because this underscores the point that the benefit of a kid to having two parents depends crucially on what the second parent would bring. If the second parent would bring instability and chaos, that's not good for the kid. And so then the question becomes not just, well, how can you get more parents who maybe they would both be wonderful parents, but they're a bit ambivalent about whether they stay together? That seems more like a social convention question. But then I think there's a whole bunch of situations where the second parent is not ready to be a good parent. And then the question gets back to, well, what can we do to make more parents economically secure, address any other barriers they have to being a stable, positive influence for their family. The economics here is obvious to me as an economist, right? How do we do more to increase the share of non-college educated adults with family-sustaining wages and jobs? But even let's think about when you look at vulnerable populations, what do we see in the data is keeping a lot of these couples, again, most of them say they want to be together. What's keeping them from establishing a healthy, stable relationship for their kids? Intimate partner violence is, you know, that rears its terrible, ugly head. 
why are we not throwing tons of resources to prevent intimate partner violence, right? Like, why are we okay saying, you know what, we're just going to have a whole bunch of kids growing up without their second parent and, and we'll try and strengthen the safety net. Like, shouldn't we take that on as a policy challenge? One thing that we, again, have written a lot about in the free press, uh, I know our mutual friend Richard Reeves is really focused on, is the impact of all of these trends on boys specifically. Yes. And And you write about how boys growing up in families without a dad in the home are at a uniquely acute disadvantage. Explain a little bit what you found in your research. So here I'm drawing on really seminal research done by two different teams of economists. Both of these papers separately use mounds of administrative detailed data on kids and their home environment and their school records. And what both studies find is that the gender gap that favors girls now, such that girls are doing better in school, they're more likely to graduate, they're less likely to get in trouble, the kinds of things that Richard Reeves talks about in his book, that gender gap is larger for kids who are growing up in mother-only homes. Another way to say that is the absence of a dad in the home is putting boys at increased risk of getting suspended in school, dropping out of school, sort of negative outcomes. One of those papers, the paper by Bertrand and Pond goes further than that to try and look at mechanisms. What is it that is driving this um, elevated disadvantage for boys? And they show that the kinds of parental inputs and resources we were previously talking about, it is the case that single moms are more likely to be harsher with their children than married moms. You know, they spend less time with them. There is a small difference in those parental inputs, just comparing moms. But interestingly, boys appear to be especially sensitive to parental inputs or lack thereof, hmm. right? So what does that mean? If I sort of am ignoring my boy or I'm being really harsh with him such that he's struggling, let's say, internally, he's more likely to go to school and act out in a way that's going to get him suspended, hmm. right? That's going to sort of derail his educational progress in a way that my daughter is not at such an increased risk of. I want to be careful here because, of course, in the data sets, they can see these kinds of things. I'm not suggesting, and I don't think one should infer this from the research we have, that girls are not affected. But we know from, you know, development psychology literature, child psychology literature, girls tend to engage more in internalizing behavior when they're suffering. So they might... Mm -hmm engage more in self-harm or have an eating disorder or be depressed in a way that is bad, but we don't see it showing up as, let's say, like worse educational outcomes. So I just want to be careful and not suggesting that girls aren't affected, but the boys seem to be especially affected in these ways that show up as a, you know, disadvantage in terms of their educational and ultimately economic outcomes. Overwhelmingly, when we're talking about single parent homes, we're talking about homes in which there is a mother and not a father. I think it's like 80% yes. are single moms. Mm -hmm. You know, we were just talking about what the impact is like on kids, especially boys. What is life like for those mothers? How does being a single parent affect their hopes, their dreams, their economic opportunity, all of it? I mean, I what is my familiarity with this as an economist? I read the ethnographic studies from people who go and do these deep dive interviews with single moms. In part of my work, I work with 
organizations that are sort of on the front lines working with low-income, poor families. A lot of the organizations that serve single moms are run by single moms themselves. What's been really interesting to me is talking to them about my work, trying to get insights, right, into like, I'm like, here's what the data say. Single moms, like, you feel like an idiot, right? You're like, single moms have less time to spend with their kids, Right. It's like, duh. Duh, Right. (laughs) And so what does that feel like on the ground? You know, as one of the single moms said to me, she's not offended by what I'm showing her. In some sense, I'm validating, look, this shows up in national data, right? This isn't just you. And she's like, yeah, my, um, you know, my daughter often will say to me, her, her young daughter will say, mom, I wish you'd find a husband so he could mow the lawn and you could play with me. I mean, it's really sad. One woman came up to me after a talk this is an African-American woman who is success, like a professionally successful woman. She's like, you know, this has been a real issue in the black community for a long time. And I was like, and it's hard, right? She's like, sometimes it's downright impossible. And so while I might be getting these feminist writers from fancy magazines upset with my message, what I'm hearing from the more typical vulnerable single moms, economically vulnerable single moms, the single moms who are emailing me, you know, many of them will want to just want to tell their story of what they're trying to do to do everything they can for their kids, recognizing how hard it is. You know, I really think feminists should care about this issue, not because they hear it as an affront to women's choice, but this is affecting the well-being of millions of women in this country, that they are finding themselves raising kids by themselves, even if the dad is, you know, involved to some extent, the only one in their household. And then many of them go on to basically repeat this role when they're grandmas because their daughters find themselves doing this. This is not good for female well-being. And and back to like the privilege you and I have of a partner who's, you know, a co-parent to us, the women who have in, in many respects benefited the most from the economic and educational opportunities that have been open to us through the feminists who came before us. You know, we are now finding career and professional success at the same time as we are largely, right, 86% of our kids are growing up with the benefit of two parents. And so this is, as David Otter said in his blurb for my book, this is not a feminist success story. This has been really hard for women. I think we all, when we think about the idea of a single parent home, we see a sort of picture in our minds of a very exhausted, overworked mom. Maybe she's working multiple jobs, kids that need help. The invisible character is the dad. Yes. Right? The dad that maybe, and I really would love to hear what you have to say about this, maybe in our current culture, doesn't have a place. Yes. Doesn't have a place in the economy, doesn't have a place in the market, doesn't have a place in the educational system, and maybe also doesn't have a place in the home. What did you find in your research about that character that for me is more in the shadows than the single mom, which is the dad? First, let me acknowledge, because we're talking about so many millions of kids and families now, there isn't one character that we should have in mind. Of course. But I think that's really important because a lot of people are like, nobody should stay in an abusive marriage. Or, yes, but a lot of men are in prison. Mm, mm. We are talking about, you know, 52% of kids born to moms with a high school degree are are born to unmarried parents. 70% of kids born to black moms in America are born to unmarried parents. There are many struggling men, but that far exceeds the share of prime age men who are incarcerated or out of work 
or abusive, right? So there's no one character, but in general, that picture is more relevant. The one you paint of the sort of dad who's not in the household, the mom who's stressed, the dad who maybe has limited earnings or in and out of unemployment. I think that that it's a very relevant character. This is why in the book, I don't, you know, I never refer to deadbeat dads because I think there's a lot of there should be a lot of concern here for where are those men and where are those men and what would it take to bring them back into family life? And here again, so much of this is cyclical. You've got millions of boys growing up without dads in their houses. How are they in 10, 20, 30 years from now, where they, they never had a role model of, of a dad in the home, a committed marriage partner, committed resident father, How do we expect those boys to know how to play that role? And so pulling those men out of the shadows, as you say, the invisible characters in this story, I think absolutely is something that we need to be doing. When you read about the evidence from these programs, like community programs that work on responsible fatherhood, the compelling empirical evidence about, okay, these dads go through a 15-hour parenting class, you know, is it effective? Well, none of them that I've seen are wildly effective to the extent we don't really see an increase in their involvement with the kids. We don't really see an increase in how many of them continue to, you know, co-parent effectively with the mom. But one thing that comes out of these studies is that it's not enough to just put them through a parenting class, right? At the end of the course, you see, yes, okay, they know how to play with their kid. They might be more nurturing with their kid, but they still have a criminal record or they still have some mental health challenges or they're still dealing with unemployment. So there are real barriers there that need to be addressed, I think, to really try and bring more of these men out of the shadows. The second thing I would say about this is when we think about social norms or conventions, many people don't want to touch this topic or they're writing me off as a scold because they don't want to go back to stigmatizing single moms. And hopefully you would agree with your assessment of my book. I am not stigmatizing single moms in any way. But do people want to promote a social convention of dads if you have a child? Don't disappear, right? That seems like a a behavior we might be okay stigmatizing, right? Like not being committed to helping the mom or the child. (laughs) Totally. I mean— It's just, it's such a sign to me of how unraveled things have become that even asserting the idea that it is good to be an involved parent, it is good for a mom and a dad to consider getting married, it is good for a dad to contribute and be in a kid's life. Like the idea that these things are sort of reflexively heard as being scoldish, school marmy, the sign of like, you know, Phyllis Schafly style social conservative coming out of your mouth is just to me a sign of how crazy the conversation around this topic has gotten. But I, I guess I'll be the stand-in for that person, you know, for the person that's hearing all of these dire statistics and and maybe thinking and maybe as a, of a certain generation or a certain political persuasion and is hearing you and saying, duh, Melissa, there's an obvious solution here. We were better off in the world before the 1960s where men had a very clear socially prescribed role, which was they were the breadwinners, and women had a very clearly socially prescribed role, which is they took care of the home. Right. 
doesn't it make sense for us to go back to that? That right. person might ask. Right. And you yeah. and you would say. Yeah. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be explicit here, which is that I do not in any sense bemoan women's economic independence. Okay. So to the extent that part of this increase in single motherhood is driven by women now not needing to be financially dependent on abusive or even less than abusive, like undesirable or unstable partners, that is a good thing. Unequivocally, I think it's a good thing that women are able, more able to provide financially for themselves and their children and not have to be married. Having said that, to the extent that these trends are being driven by men's economic opportunity and position being eroded, that's a bad thing. And we should be able to hold both of those thoughts in our mind at the same time, that women having economic opportunities is a good thing. Men losing earnings potential and employment is a bad thing, right? And so the other, you know, the other really, I think, obvious point to make here is let's go back to the fact that only 12% of kids growing up with a mom with a four-year college degree are living in a single mother situation. So it's not the case that modern marriage is inherently at odds with economic opportunities or career moms. College-educated women are still raising their kids in really large numbers with a partner in the house. And so I'd like us to think about this as how do we improve the economic stability and attractiveness, if I, you know, again, to use unromantic ways of thinking about this, men outside the college-educated class, such that marriage is, again, uh, feels like a feasible, attainable institution for people, even those without college degrees. Another important thing to note is in survey evidence, you don't see widespread rejection of marriage as an institution. You don't see in the U.S. that there's been a widespread move away from the desire to get married. This goes back to something you observed earlier in our conversation. Rather, it feels like achieving a stable married home is a bit of a luxury good. It's it's something that's harder for people without higher levels of education and income to achieve. And so for that reason, like, let's Let's, you know, we've, I've already used the word privilege here. Let's use some equity terms here. From the perspective of equity, we should not be okay with that advantageous institution being something that's increasingly out of reach for those who aren't in the highest education income classes in our society. There was a very snide, almost hilariously so, review of your book in the Washington Post. And I'm bringing it up only because it really summarizes what I consider to be the big pushback to the notion of like bringing back marriage. And this is sort of a utopian idea that we need, as the reviewer said, Rather than pushing for marriage as the goal, we need to, quote, work to foster a new norm of communal child rearing. Now, it is true that for many, many, many thousands of years of human civilization, we weren't raised in the way that you and I were, a two-parent home, et cetera. Maybe it was a two-parent home, but there were lots of other people around. I would love for you to respond directly to the notion that the solution to the current malady is not a two-parent home. It's rather 
a new norm of communal child rearing? A, how do you understand that argument? Yeah. And B, how do you respond to it? I mean, in some sense, my, you know, my initial question is, what community? What community? In the neighborhoods where there are large shares of kids being raised in single-parent homes, what in practice is the idea here? That those single moms are also going to take care of other people's single moms? That, you know, or the community, are we expecting the wealthy community to take care of those kids? I mean, at a neighborhood level, again, like in the real world, very practically, at a neighborhood level, the work that's come out of this lab at Harvard that has all of the tax records on millions of kids, the single biggest predictor of a high rate of upward mobility for kids in a neighborhood is the share of kids being raised in two-parent homes. Those are the strongest communities at a neighborhood level. So the breakdown of the two-parent home affects kids at an individual level, but it also is having negative spillovers at a neighborhood level. And so I get, I'm like, but those are precisely the communities that are struggling the most. A different interpretation of the suggestion that we need more communal raising of kids is a progressive reaction that I've gotten, which is stop fetishizing the two-parent family. The government essentially needs to step in to a larger degree so that family becomes irrelevant. So what's the idea here? We just replace, need to ex- replace the family with the state. Replace the family with the state, which I've yet to see an example where that's worked. But let's just, again, get back to reality of the U.S. Even if we manage to extend the child tax credit so that we send an additional $2,000 to families, do you think that's going to go meaningfully to, like, closing these class gaps I'm talking about? Right? Having a second parent in the home who brings in not an additional 2000 but more like an additional— 50,000, 100,000, an extra set of hands, an extra person to supervise the kid, read to the kid, love the kid. How much of a government check is it going to take to make up for that? I would propose that you can't have a check large enough. And so, yes, I think as a community, as a society, we need to be doing much more to take care of vulnerable kids in this country. But being very honest about the fact that the millions of them who are missing out on a second committed parent in the household is perhaps, you know, one of their greatest disadvantages. And thinking about ways as a society we can strengthen families as opposed to trying to replace families is really what we need to be doing. After the break, what should we do about all of this? Melissa Carney has a few ideas. Stay with us. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's talk about what we can do realistically to solve the problem that we're facing. You make it clear that there's no one policy solution that can replace the benefit of a two-parent home, period. But from a policy perspective, there are things we can do. And I wonder, what are some of the policies that and programs that you think local or federal government should adopt that will help strengthen families right away? The first thing I think we need to do is put strengthening families at the top of the policy agenda so that we have an equal amount of public funding, of research funding, of research energy, of community innovation, going into programs that are aimed at strengthening families as we do programs aimed at increasing education and health outcomes. We try all sorts of things to improve education. Many of them are not effective. We don't give up. We keep trying ways to improve schools, okay? Similarly for job training, I would submit that we do not have a commensurate commitment to finding and scaling programs that strengthen families. It's only, you know, if you look at the Administration for Children and Families budget, only 1% of their budget goes to community programs that have an explicit goal of strengthening families. So there are programs around the country that aim to help couples build strong relationships, that work with families who have an incarcerated parent, that work to, you know, prevent intimate partner violence, all sorts of things. We have very limited evidence of success, but in part because these programs are operating on shoestring budgets. So, you know, thinking about what I said earlier, there's only so much you could do when there's real barriers that aren't being addressed. So I would put a lot more you know, money and research emphasis on building up an evidence base on the kinds of community programs that work and then scale them. We also need to double down on all of the things that we talk about to improve the economic position of adults in this country without college degrees, sectoral training programs, career and technical education programs, community colleges. Again, like all of those sort of parenting family interventions, if the adult can't bring in money and doesn't have stable employment, that just brings so many struggles. And so bolstering the economic position of vulnerable adults and parents is really critical. And I would, you know, we just haven't done enough there, frankly. And then third, and here's where I have less, fewer economic policy tools to draw on, I do think we need to promote a social convention of two-parent homes for kids where we do have social science evidence suggesting that role models matter, celebrity messaging matters, local leader messaging matters. Far be it from me to tell pastors what to say or Hollywood how to write scripts, but those kinds of messages matter. And this is why I think it's important that we're honest about the benefits of two-parent households and fatherhood engagement for kids and promote that kind of messaging. Social convention is one way of putting it. Another way of putting that might be, and this is the more negative way of putting it, and I'm wondering how far you would go, re-stigmatizing the idea of not being married, right? It seems to me that what happened was when you looked to Hollywood, the message was, it is cool to not be married. And I'm being really crude yeah. here, but like, it's cool to not be married yeah. and have a kid out of wedlock. All the hot, cool people in LA are doing it. 
then that trickles down to the whole culture. And the only people that are saved from it, as you put it, are the wealthy people, while everyone else is suffering the trickle-down consequences of their luxury beliefs, as Rob Henderson might say if you were in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And so, like, promoting a positive vision, yes, but, you know, is there also a sense of sort of I hate the word shame or stigma, but like, how does that fit into this conversation? Because if we're living in a culture where there's like, it's bad to judge anything as being better or worse than something else, you're coming into this conversation rightly and saying, no, this thing is materially better. We see the effects that it has on families and kids. Right. Like, right. how do we push people to embrace the thing that's better without stigmatizing the thing that's worse? First, let me say how far this. I will call it a well-intentioned idea of like, we don't want to stigmatize any family type. It's not just Hollywood. There are literally academic disciplines, not economics, family science. I went to their website to submit one of my papers. On their website, like this is an academic discipline. It says, we reject the idea that certain families, you know, are inherently better than others. And I'm like, wait, but in the data, certain family structures deliver more resources and benefits to kids. That's not a moral or value judgment. That is just a reflection of reality that we see in data set after data set, study after study. So in an effort to be inclusive of all family types, we don't want to fall into the trap of not being honest about what we know is beneficial for kids. Now, how you promote a social norm without stigmatizing the victim is difficult, but I'm optimistic enough to think we could do that. So part of the reason why, again, mm -hmm. I think people, many people are rightly hesitant to do this kind of promote a social norm that I'm talking about is because in the past, single mothers and their children were so stigmatized that they were essentially outcasts from communities. Yes. Right? Yes. I, I mean, of course we should never go back to that, but there's got to be a way for us to promote at least two-parent involvement in their kids' lives. The reason why marriage plays such an important role in my book is because it turns out that at a practical level, marriage is the institution that delivers two parents in a household to kids, right? We just do not have a robust alternative in this country. That's not to say we couldn't and we couldn't have strong cohabitation, but we don't. So like as an economist, I don't really care if you're married or not. Do I care that Two parents are in the household contributing to their, you know, the resources for their kid. I can tell you that that's better for the kid on average in the data. And so we should be able to promote that without stigmatizing the parents or the kids who find themselves in the unfortunate, difficult position of only having one parent in the household. What are the kinds of things that we can experiment with? I do not know if they work. But there are responsible fatherhood campaigns being run around the country, some of them funded by the federal government. So in D.C. and all the bus stops, there's not all of them, but in a bunch of the bus stops, there are ads, take time to be a dad today. And it has, a, you know, a picture of a young dad having a tea party with his daughter, right? That doesn't stigmatize anybody, but it's a positive reflection. Right. It elevates a certain behavior. It elevates. And so that's the kind of thing I have in mind, but also really... Just being honest about it. If I just see what's on Disney Plus or Netflix, there's a romantic like it, it romanticizes untraditional family structures in a way that just isn't really an honest reflection of how difficult those situations tend to be. 
It's not as if the federal government hasn't tried to venerate the institution of marriage before. In 2001, there was something called the Healthy Marriage Initiative that was launched by the Bush administration to promote marriage among low-income couples with children. Here we are 22 years later. Doesn't seem to have changed much. Is that a statement on that specific policy or just on the limits of the government's ability to promote marriage as an institution? Uh, the latter. And I will admit, for about 10 years, I was one of those social scientists who poo-pooed the like Bush administration healthy marriage initiative. You're like, oh, look at the evidence. They tried to get more people to get married. It did absolutely nothing. And then you dig in further and you sort of read the descriptive work. And Sarah Halpern Meekin is this, you know, she's a scholar at Wisconsin. She interviewed a bunch of the low-income couples who participated in these voluntary programs. And I've really changed my mind on these. Not, they were ineffective in what they set out to do. But where I've changed my mind is in the wisdom of continuing to try to help these vulnerable couples and families. So one of the things I learned from Sarah's qualitative ethnographic work with these couples is most of them say they want to be together. And then they also reveal that they didn't really grow up in married parent homes. They're not surrounded by married couples. They don't really know how to make it work, and there are real barriers. And so then when I think about all of the other programs that have been tried in education, in training, in housing vouchers that don't work, we don't give up on them, right? In some sense, like, we we gave up on, on trying to promote families because it seemed hard, but it's also really important. And, and so I actually think the lesson we should draw is not, so let's not try, but it's actually, let's go bigger. Let's try and give more resources and attention to these vulnerable families. The other thing that I think it's important to note about that Healthy Marriage Initiative, that part of, you know, sort of funding has been maintained at that really small amount, but it's morphed into strengthening families and responsible fatherhood, which I think most people would be more comfortable with. It's not about marriage promotion. It's about, you know, meet families where they are. How do you help parents navigate co-parenting even when they're unmarried how do you promote fatherhood engagement when the father doesn't live in the home? Those are the kinds of programs that public funding is more likely to be going to now. One of the things I think is hopeful and also surprising about our current moment is that the kind of programs, including subsidies and tax credits that used to be thought of as sort of the precinct of the political left, has now been embraced by surprising people on the right, people like J.D. Vance, People like Marco Rubio, who's proposed a parental leave plan that incentivizes marriage, been supported by people like Dan Crenshaw. Talk to us, if you would, for a second, just about the changing politics of, of this issue that I think is actually really, really optimistic and makes you think that like bipartisanship might be possible, at least on this. I am optimistic to the extent that people on the left has more traditionally been willing to or eager to spend money to help low-income families. People on the right now are very explicit about the need for pro-family policy agenda, right? Mitt Romney proposed a child allowance. I mean, progressives should love that. <laughs> progressives should love that. What's so upsetting and frustrating to me as an academic, which is like, wait, this looks like we can all agree. We all want to build a healthier society for families. That means recognizing the importance of families and giving families more money, but there are, you know, there are people who are so dug in and they're with their own ideological lens that they're like, no, 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 I want to give money to low-income families, but not say two-parent families are better. 
I mean, let's let's just be clear. We should be supporting vulnerable families regardless of parental marriage structure. Okay? So in the past, welfare was only cash welfare was only available to single moms. I mean, in the way past, if you had a man living in the house, you would lose your check. Okay. So obviously that's a bad idea. And nobody's suggesting going back to that because that explicitly disincentivizes marriage. But even though we don't explicitly disincentivize marriage now, our tax and transfer system does implicitly disincentivize marriage. So let me give you one example. The earned income tax credit, if you're married and you're both working, you're much less likely to qualify for the earned income tax credit because our tax code works where you pool the income across two people. And so a woman who might be on the margin of, you know, I make $30,000, I get the earned income tax credit, my child gets Medicaid. If I marry that guy making 50,000, we lose the earned income tax credit, we lose Medicaid. You do have an incentive to cohabit instead of get married. So you can keep all those benefits. And so we unintentionally, our, our tax and transfer system unintentionally does, does you know, discourage marriage at least between two people who work, we should be getting rid of all of those those legacy effects. And I don't think that will dramatically turn things around, but it will affect some people on the margin. The one big exception to the rule here is Asian American families who across all education groups, it seems all classes, have really high rates of two-parent households, really high rates of marriage. Why do you think that is, and what can we learn from their success? That was the finding and the research, the data work I did for this book that surprised me the most. I'm sure there are scholars of Asian American experience in the U.S. who knew that. I did not know that until I did the work for this book. Among whites, among blacks, among Hispanics, there's this huge college gradient. But among Asian Americans, regardless of maternal education— really high rates of two-parent homes. So the least educated moms who identify in the census as Asian American are more likely to live in married parent situations than the most educated Hispanic and black moms. And so I think it's really interesting. It's not explained by different economic situations. What do I mean from that? If we go back to something we talked about earlier, there was a decrease in the both absolute and relative economic position of men without a college degree. That is true in the data for white men, black men, Hispanic men, and Asian men. It corresponded to a reduction in marriage for white men, black men, Hispanic men, but not for Asian men and women. So even though non-college educated Asian men sort of saw the same economic trends over the past 40 years, that happened without the subsequent reduction in marriage, that makes me think that there is a strong role here for social convention. Right. I mean, like, yeah, I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert in in anything. But just, again, common sense. To me, the indication of that is clear, which is that culture matters. Culture is a more powerful force than just about anything else. And if you have strong culture, strong culture of your community, strong culture, however you want to describe that grouping— it's going to lead to a different outcome, much more so than like than like a check. Yes. So, so one of the things we do as academics is we spend a lot of time implementing really well identified, detailed academic studies that confirm what 
you know, already. Right. Right. (laughs) And so there are, you know, I could point to very specific things in papers that I describe in the book that shows, you know, in places where there were already a larger share of births being born outside of marriage, when, you know, certain economic shocks hit, people respond differently. Right. And so this is the point. How people respond to different economic conditions depends on the social norms governing behavior. And so that's why it's not just economics or not just social norms. It's both. And I think the Asian exception really is a good data point that raises that possibility very obviously. Most people, I think, Melissa, listening to our conversation are just nodding along. And they're going to be like, yeah, everything Melissa's saying comports with what I see with my own eyes. And when I say what I'm about to say now, which is that this book and your findings in it, you know, the very sober book have been received, like it's it's been like a nuclear bomb, at least in certain contexts. <laughs> um, they're going to be I like- as I feel like I've been hit by a bus. <laughs> right. And they're going to say, what the hell? Why is that? So I put the question to you. You write that that you would speak to sort of your fellow scholars about your plans for writing this book, and they would say things along the lines of, I tend to agree about all of this, but are you sure you want to be out there saying this publicly? How did this become so out of bounds, and why was it so important for you to sort of trespass those bounds and talk about it anyway? This issue was first raised, I think, you know, very prominently by Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the 60s when he was an analyst at the Department of Labor. And he wrote a memo calling attention to the large share of unmarried moms in the Black American community at the time. You know, a big part of his memo was really saying, hey, there's high unemployment rate among Black men that's contributing to this, which of course is I have very strong echoes of that in what I talk about in my book and echoing the work of William Julius Wilson in the 80s, talking about the economic marriage ability or desirability of men is really important. He was telling that story in his memo or calling attention to that fact in the 60s. It got shut down, basically, with accusations of him being a racist. And when you read his memo, you know, I read it as an economist and I'm like, oh, but he was telling the story of high unemployment and then this corresponding increase in single mother homes. But then there was also some really unfortunate, you know, language that would strike us now. as like, well, that's not productive. Now you just like made this a cultural shaming issue of black women as well. But it got shut down as a racist topic for years. And, and then in the 80s and 90s in welfare reform, when there was, you know, that was, that was signed by President Clinton. But it was amazing. The welfare reform debate had explicit language in the final federal law calling attention to the rise in non-marital childbearing as a social problem, right? So it very much took this position that marriage was beneficial for kids. But during that debate, again, there were some really ugly stereotypes of the welfare queen that had, you know, racialized stereotypes. I do think the racial element has made it particularly challenging to talk about Why did I feel like it was worth trespassing on this topic? In the past 40 years, what's happened, we still have these huge racial ethnic gaps, which cannot be ignored. But now we also have really large class gaps. And so for all of our interest and, and I will say genuine commitment as, you know, as a society to increasing equity, to improving outcomes for kids from, you know, less advantaged backgrounds, it's impossible to look at the data, look at these education, income, race-based gaps, and not think 
Family structure is a huge, perhaps the largest factor contributing to this. And so I was just like, I can't keep talking about this for another 20 years and pretend we're going to solve this with the earned income tax credit or training programs for adults. We're not going to improve this until we equalize or at least close gaps in home environments for, for kids. Let me just be very specific about the differences across the race and ethnic groups. 77% of white kids in the U.S. grow up with married parents. 88% of Asian kids, 62% of Hispanic kids, 38% of black kids. That's not blaming black moms. That is acknowledging that only 38% of black kids in this country have the benefit of married parents in their home. We cannot accept that as a reality and not realize that in doing so, we are just essentially resigning ourselves to kids showing up at school with very different levels of preparedness to learn, right? Kids only spend 10% of their time in schools. That gap in family structure will continue to perpetuate advantage and disadvantage across the generations if we don't take it on. I'm struck in sort of watching the reaction to your book, the fact that some of your fellow academics whose job ostensibly is to pursue truth sort of dissuaded you from going near it. You know, how many areas of research, of inquiry, of basic curiosity about the most important things in our lives, in our culture, in our country, in our world are sort of third rail now? Yep. Like if you're unable to write a book saying two parents in a house are better materially than one, what else is off limits and what can we do to combat that? In some sense here, I think I'm protected as an economist because I think more than other social science disciplines, quite frankly, economists are pretty ruthless in, hey, this is what the data say. <laughs> I'm not absolving this completely. There are definitely in-group right answers among economists, Yeah, right? And so the pushback I got from fellow economists was really more just like a concern, hey, you have a lot of academic um, credibility. Do you really want to wade into the culture wars? Do you want to use your sort of hard-earned capital. academic capital doing that, right? That's the pushback I got. Not, you can't publish this because we don't like totally. the answers. right. Though I will say, the University of Chicago Press published my book. I'm not sure other academic press would have been as eager to publish my book. And it wasn't an easy process. I got four reviews. One of the reviewers basically told the press, you should not be publishing a book in 2023 that calls for a return to marriage. And I had to, they basically said, like, you have to get that reviewer to back down. So even at the Chicago Press, which you might think is the most committed to, like, just telling the hard truths— it wasn't, you know, a walk in the park to get this book past the reviewers. This worries me deeply as a scholar, as a teacher, as a researcher. It worries me deeply that there are right answers and there are wrong answers, you know, among academics. And I'm not pointing my fingers at any individual academics, but I do think, you know— I, I'm <laughs> Barry, I'm being careful here. There are clear pressures of what topics are valued, what topics people should pursue, what topics are going to get published in the best journals, are going to excite university officials that I think is really antithetical to what we should be doing as scholars. 
and it, you know, I, when sometimes my friends outside the academy are like, oh, is it really as bad as people say? I'm like, oh, it's something that worries me deeply. Well, this was incredible. We want to have you back. You're such a good talker. Melissa Carney, thank you so much for making the time to come on. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me in this conversation. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if it challenged you, if it made you angry, if you agreed with it, but you have some pushback, all of it's great. That's the point of having an honest conversation. Share this episode with your friends and family and use it to have a conversation of your own. Last but not least, if you want to support Honestly, there's just one way to do it. It's by going to the Free Press's website, thefpthefp.com, and becoming a subscriber today. And yeah, you could become a free one. We'll love you anyway. But consider paying $8 a month to become a paid subscriber. It's only $8 a month, and we'd really appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.